Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Genesis chapter 25, beginning at verse 28, reading through 34. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him. Rebekah, his wife, conceived, and the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. One people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to, de- to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Jacob was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew. And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? Jacob said, Swear to me this day, and he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let us pray. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in your house where we as your children can praise your name and witness the demonstration of the outpouring of your spirit as we have experienced it this morning through the baptism of Laurie and through the service to this point. We thank you for those who are with us, those visiting and those of our regular attenders. May thy spirit bind us together in a very special way. For those, our Father, who do not know you this morning as Lord and Savior, may the Spirit of God from on high flow through this service into the hearts of those who need to accept you as Lord and Savior. May something be said or something done that would cause the hearts to turn and souls to be lifted and salvation to come into our lives, we pray in Christ's name. (laughs) 
Perhaps all of us are well acquainted with the story of Jacob and Esau as they grew up and into manhood, but I would like this morning for us to deal with their birth. You may recall that Abraham sent his servant back to his homeland to find a wife for his son Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old, the scripture tells us, when he finally married Rebekah. But there was a problem in that she was barren. They could have no children. Tonight I'm going to speak dealing with the duties of the Christian, and one of them is prayer. And in the light of tonight's message, I could not help but pause a moment in this morning's message to look at verse 21. When the scripture says that Isaac entreated the Lord on behalf of his wife, who was barren. And the interesting phrase that follows is, and the Lord was entreated. There is power in the hearts of Christian people to get the attention of God. And God will listen when we entreat him, when we pray earnestly and sincerely, God will listen. And that's the thing that we can notice about Isaac in his prayer unto the Lord on behalf of his wife who could not have children. The Lord listened and the Lord blessed, not with one child, but with twins. Sometimes the Lord gives us more than we ask for. Now, I don't know if uh, those are few, there are a few others a set of twins right back there. I doubt that you asked for twins when you wanted children, but the Lord blessed with twins. Sometimes that's a good thing, and so I don't know what I would have done if, if we would have had twins. Uh, we uh, lost a set of twins many years ago. Uh, they were twin boys. But uh, I, I've wondered today what I would have done if, I, if, if we had raised those twin boys, but that's another story. The Lord blessed in this case, and... They had a set of twins. There comes a conflict, however, in the lives of these two with Rebecca because the scripture says that there was a struggle beginning in the lives of these two even before they were born. They struggled together in the womb, each apparently trying to be superior over the other. When they were finally born, Esau was born first, but Jacob, not to be outdone, reached out and grabbed his heel as if to say, Brother, you got out first, but I'm going to get you before this life is over. Well, we could read all kinds of things in there. And I want to divert from the, from the theme of the message this morning to make one point. And you've heard me say it before, but I believe it very strongly. And that deals with the beginning of life. The Bible recognizes in my mind, as I read the scripture, and I think is proven in this particular passage, 
that life has already begun in the womb. I believe that it begins at the point of conception. There is a life at that point. There is a life. And I think that it does not fall into the, the grasp of man or woman to make a decision about that life that has begun. That's God's decision. Now, we could go into a great discussion of reasons for abortion and so on, and then I think perhaps there are, but it certainly is extremely limited. And that's uh, enough of that subject this morning. But I wanted you to notice that this particular passage recognizes that there is life. As a matter of fact, the scripture says there are two nations within the womb in this particular case. Not just two boys, but two nations. The fathers of great people are already alive in, in the womb of Rebekah. One of the problems of life is that struggle is within. And this is the purpose that I want us to look at, at uh, the passage this morning. These two boys were struggling with each other even before they were born. It's an internal struggle, and Rebecca recognized that something was different within her, and she be, had to go and entreat the Lord to find out what it was, and the Lord revealed to her that she would have twins, and they would be the fathers of two great nations. One would be superior to the other. The younger would be superior to the elder. But there were great nations. Paul described the problems that he faced as an internal conflict. And if there's anyone this morning that does not recognize internal conflicts within himself, I, I think you are... Uh, blind to the fact that the problems that we have are not external. The problems we have have the roots internally. They may be manifested externally. We may see the results in our physical external lives, but the real root of all problems as well as the real root of all good comes from within. The struggle is internal. And Paul commented in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, these words, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing, for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. That's the problem that people have. There is no doubt in my mind that we know to do good. The problem is, in, in, the, in the words of Paul, is trying to figure out how do we accomplish it. All right, let's go on. We find that these boys are struggling within the same kind of struggle that we have, an internal struggle Rebecca had. Two nations are to be born. Well, the day comes when they're to be born, verse 24. And, the day, and when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment. Uh, the, and they called his name Esau. Esau had a ruddy complexion. That's what red means, ruddy. He was hairy. He, he, he was hairy all over. Even as a baby, he was hairy. The point that we need to make is that Esau, even before his birth, 
had the marks about him as to what he would be in life. And I believe that we have tremendous influence even over our unborn children to make them what they are. I believe that. I think our unborn children are, of course, not consciously, but some subconsciously take on the character of their environment. That which the mother and the father uh, put before them, even in the unborn condition, begins to, uh, to create the type of people that they are. So I think women need to be in church when they're pregnant because their children are going to hear the church hymns. Now, I believe they hear it. I do not think that there was ever a moment in my life from the time of my conception on that I was not in church. We have a tremendously uphill battle when we do not present our unborn as well as our born children with the truth of the gospel in Sunday school and church. We have a tremendous battle to try to convert people who have not been instilled with the gospel throughout their early life. It's difficult to win an adult person who's never been in church. Difficult. Very difficult. Here is a, a fellow who has, by the nature of uh, the, the genes, the characteristics that have been placed upon him, one who is a physical character. He takes on the nature of the physical Adam. He has interests in self-gratification. He is thinking about the here and now. He's not thinking about the future. He represents that group of people who have no interest in spiritual things, who can only think about the satisfaction of themselves today and never worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. That group who eat, drink, and be merry and don't realize that there is an eternity to think about. That group who say we only go around once, let's get it all while we can. This is the type of individual that Esau was beginning to be even before his birth. And after he was born, and Isaac saw the manliness of this fella, he looked like a man, he had a, the ruddy complexion, the hairy body already, and Esau loved him more than he did Jacob. He was the outdoorsman, he was the fighter, he was the Old Testament Rambo, the jock, the hero, all the things that seems to be appealing. He's the guy who would be in the tough man contest, to prove how really tough he is. This is the character that we see in, uh, in Esau. And Isaac uh, promoted him along those lines. On the other hand, there is this other child, Jacob, who is a very plain individual. He's fair-skinned. He's the nerd in uh, the slang of the times. He's the brains. He's the guy who loved to go into the kitchen and cook. He would never think about going out and killing a deer. He would, uh, but he loved to make things in the kitchen. He was, was more inclined to be this type of individual. He was not the fellow that would be voted most likely to succeed. He never would be the, on the football team. He would be less robust. But... There comes a problem in these two fellows. 
Esau was the guy who would say, love me for what I do, and Jacob would be the individual to say, love me for what I am. And there's a distinguishing between the two. So there comes the problem that the world will drastically uphold and support the Rambo, the, the guy who is this rough and tumble character, the person who could drink you under the table, the one who will do all of the, quote, manly things, and say, a real man doesn't need the church. A real man doesn't need somebody to guide him and lead him along by the hand. A real man takes care of himself. You hear this in our world today, and it's portrayed and, and advocated that a real man doesn't have to do that sissy stuff that they do at church. A real man doesn't have to get down on his knees and pray because he's got enough power in his fist to take care of himself. It's only the sissy and the weakling that must cry on a God and get down on the knees and, and gravel before him. This is the attitude that the world takes of the church. And those of us who are Christian have a misconcept as to what greatness is and what real manhood really is or womanhood. Now, for you ladies, excuse me if I say manhood, I'm referring to all of us. And I say to women who, who tell me that I'm wrong, then you quit saying you guys, referring to women. When you women quit saying you guys, when you're talking to a group of women, I'll quit telling you men when we're talking about the total group. Can we compromise on that? I don't know why, but women have the right to refer to themselves as guys. And I don't have the right to call them men, but that's beside the point. I'm talking about humankind, all of us together, who seemingly portray a weakness of character that makes us need to depend upon somebody superior. And men are particularly prone to do this. It's not difficult to get women to understand their need of salvation and come to Christ. It's not difficult to fill the church with women. That's done. Whenever you start counting a congregation of people, you've got to realize that the larger percentage of the people in the group are going to be women. Because men seem to take the attitude that they don't need this stuff. He's too proud to think that there's anything about being a Christian being a part of the church that he ought to have anything to do with. It's only when a man or a woman recognizes their inferiority to a supreme being, recognizes that they need a savior, and recognizing that when they go out of this world, they're going to face a supreme God that will bring a person to know that he needs to do something about his relationship to God now. I hear all of this stuff all the time. I suppose I was thinking about my sermon yesterday as I sat in the emergency room, the hospital, when I was putting cricket in the hospital yesterday. But listening to a young 20-year-old man who thought he was macho 
trying to describe how great and how big and how superior he was to the whole world. And I, I thought, young fellow, you've got a long way to come down when you fall. Listen, we've got a long way to fall, and we better fall while we can, because when the fall comes, and we tumble out of this world into eternity, it's a long way to the pit of hell. Here comes the problem now. These young men grow up. They're 40 years old now. And Esau, the big rugged man that he is, has been out hunting all day. He comes in famished. Jacob has prepared, connivingly, has prepared of the best tasting stew that anybody ever smelled in all their life. And Esau says, give me some of that. I'm about to die of starvation. Jacob says, I'll sell you some. Any of you fellows ever sell your brother something? Or any girls sell your sister something? I've done that. I expect you have. I'll sell it to you. I'll not give it to you. I'll sell it to you. Jacob says, I want your birthright in exchange for this pot of soup. Now, the birthright was a very, very important thing to a Jewish boy. First of all, it meant that he was consecrated to God. The firstborn was always dedicated to God. The firstborn, by birthright, would stand next in honor to the father. Father being, of course, the most honored person in the family, but the eldest son stood next to him in, in this position. When it came time for inheritance, the eldest son got a double portion. He became the successor to the family as ruler. He became the priest of the family. It was a, a position of distinction, of high rank, of respect, something to be coveted, something to be appreciated, something to be desired, was this position in the family called the birthright. Now, not always did the birthright remain with the firstborn. In the case of Reuben, who was the firstborn of uh, Jacob, the son of Leah, who should have had the right to be the head of the family, they stripped it from him because of his immorality and gave it to the firstborn of Rachel, the second wife, and the firstborn of Rachel was Joseph. And so he acquired the birthright of the family and became the leader of the family because the firstborn proved himself unfit to assume that responsibility. But here we have the, the birthright on the line, and Esau can think only in present-day terms. He can't think of the future. And so he says, well, you might as well have it. If I don't get a bowl of that pretty suit, I'm going to starve to death. What good is it going to do me to be the head of the family if I die first? Foolish thinking but it reflects the thinking of lots of people today who can think only in terms of the here and now and never think about the future. 
We live today from day to day, but we live only from one breath to the next. And God in his wisdom can determine when our last breath is. And brother, when we have breathed it, we have breathed it. As I said in that waiting room yesterday, they brought a person in on an ambulance that was not breathing and the doctors worked over that 60-year-old man and could not revive him and his family gathered round and they were distraught because the man had one breath left and he breathed it and he was gone, never to be restored. That happens to us all at some point in time. What good is the birthright, the right to be the, the Son of God? Now we say, well, maybe it doesn't mean too much now. I'd rather eat, drink, and be merry. I'd rather enjoy life, quote, enjoy life, because sin certainly doesn't seem to me to be very uh, much of an enjoyable life. But those of us who are Christian know that real joy and real pleasure in life comes from serving Jesus Christ we have trouble getting that across to people who are not saved. And so they think that enjoying life is the value of this life. Let's get it. Let's do it now. Let's don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. But listen, tomorrow might not come. And here was a man who could think only in those terms of right now. And so he was willing to sacrifice the rest of his life and all of eternity in order that he might have a little satisfaction right now. Now the problem is, Esau did see anything wrong with doing this. His bargain was made. He was satisfied. He never thought any more about it. Forty years later we now go and discover that, that his father, Isaac, is a... a is, uh, uh, yes, his father Isaac is about to die. Forty years has gone by, nothing has happened. And suddenly, the value of that birthright looms into the picture again. And he begins to realize that he lost his place as the head of the family for a bowl of soup 40 years earlier. And he has never rectified the situation. He has never asked for forgiveness. He's never done anything about his life. He perhaps could have gone to the Father and achieved something out of it and gotten, perhaps gotten it back, but he did not. And now he faces a day when it's too late to do anything about it. The day of judgment is exactly that way. We make our decisions about the future today. We make our decisions about eternity today. We don't make it when we get into eternity because then it's too late. What's the lesson in all of this? Well, I think, first of all, we can recognize that for a person who is indifferent to spiritual things, such as Esau was indifferent to the value of his birthright, uh, the, the indifference that people have to, to things that are eternal doesn't seem to be of any importance to them until the time is too late. They're willing to barter away eternal life for a few trifles now. That's what many of our teenagers are doing, bartering their life away for some drugs and for some alcohol. 
bartering their physical life. And we say what a shame it is that our teenagers are, are bartering their physical lives and destroying them, and it is a tragedy. Minds are going down the drain. Minds are being destroyed by all the things that are happening, particularly drugs and alcohol. But listen, there is a greater destruction going on in this world than that, and that's the destruction of the soul when the soul is being destroyed and condemned to hell because somebody thinks a little bit of fun today is of more value than all of eternity. So I think whatever it costs, I'm going to have to have it. Someday, those people will have that attitude, discover themselves in hell. I'm sure, and I put this in quotations, I'm sure they're going to say, brother, I'm in hell, but boy, it was worth it. All that fun I had on earth, it was worth it. I'm glad I did it. There is not a soul in hell that will ever make that statement. Not a one. It's not worth it. Then the remorse takes place. As the rich man who went to hell and he looked over on the other side and he saw Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham and we've spoken of that in times past. He was in remorse because he had despised his birthright. He never repented. He never prayed for repentance. Over in the book of Revelation chapter 16 or chapter 6 rather verse 16 there was a discussion during the time of the tribulation that this earth will go through, and I think that's not too far off, the time of the tribulation is seven years when this earth will be ravaged with all kinds of destruction. The scripture says the unsaved, about the unsaved, they will cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of God. But the phrase I want out of the 16th verse is this, they prayed, but their prayer was late. The rich man in hell prayed, but his prayer was too late. The people during the time of the tribulation who will want to hide themselves in the face of God and pray for God to, to, to save them may cry, but their cry is going to be too late. The Bible says, sow to the wind and you'll reap the whirlwind. But it also says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found and call upon him why he is near. This is where we are this morning. I don't know the nature, the needs, the conditions of anyone's heart, but I do know this. It takes a great man and a great woman to admit failure, to admit error. And I'm saying great men, great women, great children this morning in this congregation ought to recognize that they're not nearly as great as the God above. And that we must all submit to him one way or the other. We need this morning to call upon the Lord and ask him to forgive the sins that we have committed in our life and to save our soul. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You call now on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You call in eternity and you will not hear him answer. Call now. If there is a decision in your life, 
If you are not a Christian, but you are an adult man, adult woman, or your teenager, or your child, it makes no difference. We all must submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and admit our weakness, admit our failures, and cast ourselves upon his mercy. And I want us to have the opportunity to do that this morning. If you are not a Christian, but you want to be, you want to be saved, you're going to have to admit you're not manly like Esau. But I have to admit that you're weak and frail and inferior and call upon the mercy of God. If you want to stand in your own might before God, you'll never do it. You will have to stand only in your weakness. Stand in your weakness before God and you can be saved. Just do one simple thing. Say to God in your own prayer, make this prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and save my soul. And the Lord will be faithful and perform a miracle in your life that we call salvation. Will you do it this morning? If there are other decisions that you need to make, we invite you to do that as well. But certainly, if you're not a Christian, Will you not accept the Lord Jesus Christ? And we're going to ask you to step out of your seat and come down here. By your coming, admit your sin and confess to this congregation that you want to be saved. The Lord said, those who are ashamed of me before men, of him will I be ashamed before my Father. And that's why we ask you to come to admit that you're not ashamed of the Lord. If you need to make that decision or any other decision, you want to become a part of this church or whatever you need to do, invite you to do it. We stand and sing our invitation hymn. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.